Liberland is the world's newest micronation. Liberland is a kind of incubator and role model for a society based on principles of liberty and anarcho-capitalism, powered by a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer computational network called blockchain. So Liberland's ambition is to build the most advanced and sustainable 21st century cosmopolitan micronation. And this offers an ideal testing ground for innovative urban design strategies. Liberland's vision with its new possibility for liberty and unleashed free market entrepreneurship powered by blockchain make an ideal engine to stimulate radical transformation in the built environment. So that's kind of the foundation of the idea behind the competition. Liberland's new architecture is going to be absolutely vital to its success and advancement towards its aspirations for liberty. The thing about Liberland is it has no zoning restrictions, it has no pre-established design culture, and the field is actually wide open for innovation on every scale. And the challenge is to envision how this maximum amount of design freedom can result in a complex yet legible order rather than descend into visual chaos. Definitely, there's kind of a call for organization. However, I will say this, the competition was written from the perspective of the wild zones. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 31. In this episode, we're going to talk about Liberland. Specifically, there is a design competition underway for an urban design concept for the area of land that has been claimed as Liberland. For anybody who isn't familiar with Liberland, this is a small parcel of land. It's about seven square kilometers on the border between Croatia and Serbia, which because of a border dispute between those two countries, at the moment is unclaimed land. It's maybe the last piece of unclaimed land on earth. So a libertarian politician from Serbia named Vit Jedlika decided to ford the Danube and go plant a flag on this unoccupied piece of land, which he has now claimed as Liberland. And over the last several years, he's been working to build up a network of ambassadors who are working on negotiating with other countries in the world community to try to get recognition of this place as a new free independent micronation called Liberland. Now, unfortunately, Croatia isn't too keen about this idea because it's kind of on their side of the Danube. Even though they don't claim that land, I think they're concerned that if the boundary dispute doesn't work out the way they want, that at that point they might want it. We'll talk a little more in our upcoming interview about how this place came to be. But while it might seem a little far-fetched, it really is an interesting possibility for a kind of free private city which, as we discussed with Titus Gable in episode 25, is this idea of having an independent city that is truly sovereign, or at least has much less control placed onto it by a host nation. Yeah, there's been a long-standing debate amongst libertarians about the way to achieve a more libertarian society. Typically, this is focused around two broad categories of either political action, which I would broadly define to include things like the Free State Project, as well as secession movements. And the opposing view is something like agorism, 
where it's more about individuals engaging in gray market and black market activities to subvert the state and build their own independent institutions that give people an alternative to the state paradigm. I see approaches like free private cities and Liberland to be sort of a third way, which I'd like to call greenfieldism. And the idea is that rather than trying to change an existing society, you're using undeveloped greenfield land and building a new society from the ground up using libertarian principles. Yeah, and of course, seasteading would be another good example of this, where you don't even need the land. You just need to make something that can float. That's right. One thing that I really like about the greenfieldism concept is that so much of libertarian theory is stuck in abstract philosophizing. One of our missions with this podcast has always been to bring these ideas into the real world and into the built environment. And I see greenfieldism as a way to really do this. And not only do you actually build a libertarian society, but it also serves as a tangible and visible monument or beacon that people can look to and gain a better understanding of what that sort of society is. And one thing that I really like about this, I mean, for one thing, I'm just personally not that interested in political action. And likewise, I think there's some interesting things about agorism, but I just, I just don't see myself doing it. I guess I'm a sort of a company man at heart. And so I don't see myself, you know, branching out and doing some sort of agorist entrepreneurship. But Lieberland and these free private cities ideas, they do excite me more so than those other approaches do. Even though it's a bit of a moonshot, where there are quite a few challenges that need to be met in order for it to be successful. However, the hardest part about this is actually finding undeveloped greenfield land to develop. And Lieberland has solved this problem. They have the land. The only thing they don't have is the society built on top of it. So when this design competition was announced, I got really excited about it and seeing that this is something that I could really get behind and support as a way to build a truly libertarian society. And there is also some other precedent for this, as we discussed with Titus Gable. There are some other charter cities and startup cities that have been discussed and are in development. And in fact, in that interview, Titus mentioned a project that they had been working on, which has since been announced as the Prospera Project in Honduras. And this is really interesting. It's essentially going to be sort of a Caribbean resort village, which is founded using the free private cities philosophy. But one thing that I think is really interesting about this is that for something like $100,000, you can own a home that's designed by Zaha Hadid architects. So I think there's a lot of potential for this development going forward, and it will be an interesting case study to get some lessons learned when developing Lieberland. Now, of course, Joe mentioned Zaha Hadid architects. Patrick Schumacher, who we did a, a four-part series on back in our episodes 9 through 12, included an interview with Patrick. Patrick is the principal of Zaha Hadid Architects, which is one of the premier architecture firms in the world. And he's also a vocal proponent of libertarianism and ideas of anarcho-capitalism. Patrick has been involved with Titus at Free Private Cities. He's also been involved with Liberland. There was a 2015 design competition for which he was a judge, and he's going to be a judge again for this competition. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Daniela Gertovich. She is the curator of the Liberland design competition. This is a project of her organization called Archagenda LLC. Daniela has a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, a Master of Architecture, and is currently a PhD candidate in Computational and Architectural Design Theory at the European Graduate School in Switzerland. And her PhD advisor is none other than Patrick Schumacher. Daniela is very interested in a lot of the ideas that Patrick has been developing, most importantly, his theory of parametricism, which we talked a lot about in our discussions with him. 
This is his theory about what he sees as the optimal design paradigm for our current society. And we're going to talk about all of that in this interview with Daniela. She is an architect, a researcher, an educator, and a scholar. She has over 25 years of international experience as an architectural designer and technologist on complex mixed-use developments such as the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and the Shanghai North Bund White Magnolia Plaza. So these are some iconic global projects that she's been involved with. She's been teaching for over 15 years, most recently as a full-time graduate faculty and thesis chair at Harrington College of Design. And through ArcAgenda, she was the curator and sponsor of the ArcAgenda debates at the inaugural Chicago Architecture Biennial in 2015. She founded ArcAgenda LLC to promote cutting-edge innovation in global architecture design. And as you'll hear in our discussion with her, she's got a lot of projects going on to create and foster the kind of discourse that Patrick talked about with us about furthering the ideas and goals of parametricism, as well as other advanced ideas about the intersections between technology, liberty, and the built environment. We'll be talking about this Liberland design competition, and I just wanted to give a few key details up front. The registration deadline is August 16th, 2020, and then the design submission deadline is the 16th of October, 2020, and the winners will be announced in November of 2020. And you don't have to be an architect um, to register. This is open to architecture students as well, as well as some other disciplines. However, if you register between July 18th to July 25th, there's a 30% discount for the registration fee, which is a promotion that's related to the Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium, which is a live streaming event that will be held on the 18th of July, 2020. And we mentioned that event in our episode 30, where we interviewed Scott Beyer. Scott will actually be one of the panelists at this event, along with Titus Gable and Patrick Schumacher. So this is the event that we've called the An Architecture Podcast All-Star Game. where it seems like a lot of the people that we've been really interested in are coming together to discuss and cross-pollinate some interesting ideas around the development of not only Liberland, but free private cities in general. The link for the Liberland design competition is designliberland2020.splashthat.com. And the link for the Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium is freeprivatecitiesarchitecture.splashthat.com. And we will provide links to both of these on our show notes for this episode, which is anarchitecturepodcast.com slash 31. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion with Daniela. We started off talking about the Liberland competition, and she gave a lot of detail about what they're going to be looking for in the submissions for that competition. And we also talked a little bit about some of the backstory of how Liberland came to be and some specifics about the site. It's interesting to think about Liberland as a building site. It really kind of makes it seem real when you start thinking about it in those terms. We then talked about the upcoming Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium, which Joe just mentioned. And then we talked more about ArcAgenda LLC, what Daniela's goals are with that organization, as well as some of her thoughts and studies into the ideas of parametricism, blockchain technologies, computational design, and many other interesting paths that she's exploring. Here's our interview with Daniela Gertovich, founder of ArcAgenda LLC. We're here with Daniela Gertovich from ArcAgenda LLC. Daniela, thanks for joining us on In Architecture. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'll give you a quick introduction to ArcAgenda LLC. So we're Chicago-based, and the firm is a research-based architectural and computational design lab which aims to advance and promote a new agenda of radical innovation for 21st century architecture and design, 
Our mission is full of freight, cutting edge innovation in global architecture and design through a unified fluid and systematic approach to generate and instrumentalize experimental design research agendas and computationally empowered design with potential to accelerate architecture's fertile co-evolution with today's complex society. We also aim to form and collaborate with entrepreneurial startups and to amplify through publication and media communication the movement towards a new framework and agenda for architecture. Also, Archagenda LLC is a Chicago Architecture Biennial Affiliate Program Partner. So just to tell you a little bit about how I became involved with Liberland, because I'm going to be talking a little about Liberland Design Competition. In 2015 is when I formed my company, Archagenda. And in that same year, in April, Thomas Jefferson's birthday, Liberland was established. And it was Patrick Schumacher, the principal of Zaha Hadid Architects, and also my PhD advisor, who was the person that introduced me to Liberland and the theories of anarcho-capitalism and libertarianism, which he himself was just beginning to be involved with at that time. Um, so I started reading uh, people like Ludwig uh, von Mises and Friedrich Hayek and became increasingly more fascinated with the theories and the movement. And uh, following that, I also had the honor to curate and inaugurate Liberland's first global design competition um, at the Arc Agenda Debates, which is an event that I curated and sponsored for the very first Chicago Architecture Biennial. That's great. We want to come back towards the end of this discussion and talk about some of the other things that you're doing with Arc Agenda, like the Biennial and some of the other seminars you're promoting. But I think the main thing we want to focus on here is the Liberland Design Competition. You mentioned that you had curated a design competition in 2015 for Liberland, but now there's a, you have a new competition that has just come online for 2020. We actually haven't talked much about Liberland on our podcast, which is we're probably remiss in that. I think a lot of our audience is probably familiar with it, but can you just start by talking a little bit about what Liberland is? Sure, absolutely. So this is super exciting. And by the way, the competition is open for registration right now through August 16th. But just to give you a background on Liberland, so Liberland is the world's newest micronation. And as I mentioned, it was established in 2015 by its current president, whose name is Vijit Luka. Liberland is a kind of incubator and role model for a society based on principles of liberty and anarcho-capitalism, powered by a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer computational network called blockchain. It is founded on the idea that the societal movement towards individual and collective freedom, prosperity, and peace will emerge through a distributed intelligence of autonomous innovators and agents of change through something that Patrick Schumacher calls the politics of discourses. Liberland is many things. It's a country, it's a city, it's a network of communications, a futuristic society, a utopian vision, a globally distributed network of intelligences and a database of emerging societal visions, that, some of which can counteract the global chaos unfolding in the wake of our pandemic. 
Liberland's motto is to live and let live, and it's expressed through its aspirations towards individual and collective freedom, autonomy, minimal governance, volunteerism, charity, free fair markets, non-aggression, diplomatic goodwill, radical innovation, entrepreneurship, and ecological responsibility, all supported by blockchain. So Liberland's ambition is to build the most advanced and sustainable 21st century cosmopolitan micronation. And this offers an ideal testing ground for innovative urban design strategies. Just to give you an idea of where Liberland is, it's situated on a territory between Serbia and Croatia, which was previously a no man's land. It has not been claimed by either Serbia or Croatia prior to Liberland's establishment. The territory encompasses only seven square kilometers along the Danube River, which periodically floods. The climate is pretty mild, similar to California, and currently Liberland is partially forested. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of land in the midst of a, a large natural preservation. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go on Google Maps, you can find Liberland. It is marked on, on Google Maps. It's sort of a D-shaped little island just on the Danube River. And as you said, it's partially forested. It looks like there's been a little bit of logging in the past on there, but it does look more or less untouched. Definitely. And actually, Liberland itself is more a peninsula. The little island is just a sliver, a tiny piece of it. It's actually yeah. bigger than what it looks like on that little sliver. But yes, it's primarily forested. It's interesting. I think when people hear that there's this piece of land that's not claimed by either of these nations, that they kind of you know, scratch their head and, and wonder, you know, how could this be? But when you, you start to understand the history of this place, both, I guess, geologically and as well as politically, there is a kind of logic to it. You look at this borderline and it just winds back and forth and back and forth across the river on either side. And the way this came to be is historically, at one time, like in prehistoric times, this was actually all underwater. It was called the Pannonian Sea. And there was this like inland sea that covered a lot of this area here. And then, of course, over time that drained out. But even in the, I think, like the 1700s, there was still a lot more water here <laughs> than there is today. And I think through the 18th century, there were all kinds of waterworks. There was, you know, there hydrological things happening up the river and down the river. There were draining wetlands to make farmlands. And over time, the course of that river has changed, but it's still this kind of broad river basin. If you think of something like the Mississippi Delta, it's not quite that wet, but there are all these little inlets and outlets kind of on either side of the river as it winds through this wide basin. And so that's kind of the geological side of it. But then this whole area was, it's been occupied by all kinds of different people. It was, for a long time, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then it became, after World War I, I guess, Serbia, Croatia, and some of these other areas around it were all part of Yugoslavia. And then when that broke up, that's when you started having these, what were regions, almost, you know, like in the U.S., they'd be like states under Yugoslavian rule. They kind of took those state boundaries and made them their national boundaries for each of these new areas. But this whole area, because of, of all the changes in the river over time, they just never really nailed down what that boundary was going to be. And it's also, a lot of the land is not very usable. Right now, a lot of it is nature preserves because of all the flooding. Well, I want to talk more about the flooding when we, uh, when we talk about some of the construction details. But, you know, that there is kind of a logic to how this place has come to be. And... 
where it's ended up is you have Serbia basically claiming the center of the river as their boundary, the, the current river, but Croatia is still claiming some of these areas on either side of the river that at one time might have been on their side of the river and are towns that have maybe more of a Croatian identities. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting issue because even though they claim part of the river, the river per se is international waters. So Liberland actually has a few boats and is planning on building houseboats. And it currently has something that is more like a timeshare boat called Liberty Freedom. And that's one of their strategies for beginning to populate the area. But I'll, I'll talk more about that later. Let's get back to the competition and talk about the goals of the competition. What are you hoping will come out of this competition? As I said, you had one in 2015 that produced some really provocative designs and, and images and, and visuals for this place. What are you looking to see in some of the proposals uh, in this 2020 competition? Okay, so just as a way of introducing what the competition is all about. So what I consider the sort of, quote, thesis of the competition is that Liberland's vision with its new possibility for liberty and unleashed free market entrepreneurship powered by blockchain make an ideal engine to stimulate radical transformation in the built environment. So that's kind of the foundation of the idea behind the competition. The thing about Liberland is it has no zoning restrictions. It has no pre-established design culture. And the field is actually wide open for innovation on every scale. And the challenge is to envision how this maximum amount of design freedom can result in a complex yet legible order rather than descend into visual chaos. So free market urban order is fluid, distributed, emergent, and ever-evolving. And it's at the core of Liberland's architectural and urban design aspirations. Liberland seeks the most innovative designs for its advanced network society, a fluid, dynamic, and nature-like ecosystem. Liberland's new architecture is going to be absolutely vital to its success and advancement towards its aspirations for liberty. The other thing that's very important in the competition is ecological sensitivity, and it's actually envisioned to operate as a free market environmentalism. Participants are being asked to approach this competition as a real-world design challenge, kind of a lucid development process for a multi-stage evolution towards a fully functional, architecturally sophisticated, and intelligently adaptive city. I can talk a little bit about the design parameters. People entering the competition are asked to consider several questions when formulating their design strategy. And some of those questions are things like, can Liberland's radical possibilities for liberty and unleashed free market economy and a transparent distributed peer-to-peer -peer computational network blockchain stimulate a radical transformation of the built environment? Um, the other question, and the main one actually, is how can the theoretical implications and practical applications of blockchain be translated into new strategies for architectural and urban design. That's kind of the core of this competition. And how can maximum design freedom result in a complex logical order? I already talked about that a little bit instead of descending into a visual chaos. And then how can free market urban order 
be expressed in Lieber Lawrence Urban and Architectural Design. We're also talking in the brief about light touch rules that instead of thinking about master planning strategies, Lieberland offers the opportunity to mix up the zoning and do something truly innovative. On that last point, so there's this paper that Patrick has written where he's spelled out some sort of different potential zoning regimes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That's actually one of the references that is on the website that I'm referring people to. It's a a relatively complex thing. I don't want to get into the whole (laughs) paper, but definitely what he's suggesting is that there's different approaches to both structuring the development team and structuring kind of the development strategy and Mm -hmm. the different development, what he calls regimes. And briefly, they kind of range from very sort of ordered and rule-based type of development strategies, which are more aligned with master planning, where there's kind of like a big plan at the outset, and then there's kind of a plug-and-play that goes on after that, all the way down to suggestions for quote-unquote wild zones. I'm not sure if that's what he calls them, but I think that's I'm almost sure that's what he calls them, where the design strategy is wide open. The development strategy is wide open. Yeah. And in that paper, he um, discusses each of these. And it's interesting because he's not he's not simply saying that we're libertarians or anarchists or whatever. And so therefore, we must use the most wide open, you know, unrestricted zoning. What he says is that for each of these regimes, there are costs and benefits where the more restrictive ones what they do is they provide a bit more certainty, long-term certainty for investors that they kind of understand what that property is going to be over the long term. Whereas the wild zones have you know much more flexibility and really allow for a lot more experimentation and innovation. It sounds like what Patrick is thinking is that what Liberland needs is really a mix of all these different regimes throughout the area so that you can have some areas that are maybe a bit more rigid and a bit more structured mixed with these other areas that are, as you say, wild zones that are quite uh, innovative and experimental. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a very pragmatic side to all his considerations, not just in this writing, but in many other writings, even Mm -hmm. though the vision really is to ultimately give designers and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial developers, maximum liberty to experiment with new ways of approaching design from the perspective of things like zoning or unit mixes and things like that, so that we're not kind of stuck and mired in what we've been sort of stuck in. I'll talk about that a little bit later when I get into the symposium agenda. That's actually a really good part of the symposium. But yeah, definitely there's kind of a call for organization. However, I will say this, the competition was written from the perspective of the wild zones in the (laughs) sense that we want to give people the maximum liberty and yet challenge them to come up with a design order themselves. And so what the designers are invited to do is to challenge the urban and architectural design status quo by responding to Liberland's fundamental values and to envision the full design potential for this micronation, like I mentioned, we're giving them a wide open field to do that. The proposed designs must be agile and highly responsive to free market forces that are open to perpetual evolution. 
and proposals must also include design scenarios that creatively engage the theoretical, social, and technological implications of distributed intelligence systems such as blockchain. What I'm saying is that rather than a purely fantastical or artistic scheme, Liberland seeks radically creative yet mature proposals for a fertile and high-density city nation. And the participants should approach this competition as a real-world design challenge, so provide a lucid development process for a multi-stage evolution towards a fully functional, architecturally sophisticated, and intelligently adaptive city. Participants are free to propose scenarios that are both design-focused and socially speculative, engaging the broader economic, political, social, and technological projections on the future of Liberland. The design proposals should respond to the following theoretical premise. So I'm just gonna read this. The validity of a fertile network society is dependent on the presence of three stabilizing factors, the radical autonomy of its constituent agents, liberty, the commitment to unregulated affiliation, free markets, and a transparent distributed peer-to-peer -peer network, blockchain. So that kind of sums up what the competition is asking for. You know, one thing that I think is really compelling about going through this exercise about having design competitions for Liberland is, for one thing, it kind of makes it real for people. It's like, oh, people are actually looking at this as something that could be built and could be developed. And it also makes you really look at the piece of land as kind of a piece of property and look at the opportunities that exist there without just talking about, you know, some kind of theoretical private city it's interesting to have this piece of land that you can look at and say, how can we really make this work in this place? So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the site itself as a construction site. What's it going to take to build something here? Can you talk a little bit about the construction access, the topography, climate, some of those types of things? The biggest challenge, actually, that Liberland has is that there are now over 600,000 applicants for citizenship. The country can actually only accommodate about 120,000 residents. So that means that designers have to really devise some innovative strategies for densification and programmatic permeability. The 600,000 is, that's a crazy number for the number of people for this place, but even 120,000. We were talking about, you mentioned earlier that this is seven square kilometers, which is to try to put that in people's heads. It's kind of like this teardrop shaped piece of land that's about a mile and a half wide by two and a half miles long. It's a good-sized piece of land for a little city, but it is a little city. <laughs> it's This is not like a metropolis that we're it talking is, about. It is. I mean, but if you look at other micronations, like, for instance, Monaco is just super dense, or even Hong Kong or uh, Singapore. I mean, those are models for super dense cities, and that may change right now in the wake of COVID. Who knows what people are actually going to want. But what we're saying is that it can accommodate a maximum, absolute maximum of 120,000. That's not to say that all 120,000 will move there at the same time. Right. But because of that, in addition to occupying the territory, Liberland has formed this sort of global network that offers an e-residency program, which provides entrepreneurial opportunities for those interested in establishing virtual businesses in Liberland. So Liberland is not just really a nation, as I said before, it's also the sort of global network of like-minded or close to like-minded people who are 
espousing libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism and all those values to those philosophies. So this little piece of disputed land is really not everything that Libra land is about. And I'll talk about some exciting projects too. So Libra land is in the process of developing a virtual marketplace for architecture, which will be kind of an active and vibrant ongoing design culture for development of Libra land and virtual reality. Um, as a platform for testing and selling designs to prospective developers and clients prior to building. However, this platform, which I'm one of the collaborators in this project together with Saha Hadid Architects in Liberland, and what we're envisioning is that Liberland will be kind of a test case and we're going to build out what's called a digital twin in virtual reality. And eventually when the territory becomes available, we're also going to use that as a vehicle for selling the land and establishing connections between architects and clients. Liberland is only the prototype for this startup, and we're planning to kind of deploy that to other startup cities and sort of stateless societies and charter cities around the world. So this is kind of an exciting thing that Liberland is going to inaugurate. And so their vision goes beyond its own strict borders. I think that's really interesting because one of the challenges for libertarians is defining how do you establish property rights, initial property rights. And we have these theories about homesteading where, you know, you go out and you clear an area of land and you start planting rows of corn or something. And then whatever you can start to develop in a productive way that becomes a basis for you to gain an ownership stake over that piece of land. But obviously, when you're talking about a city as dense as this one's going to be, and that hopefully will be developing rapidly, that kind of approach, just it's just not going to work. I mean, I think that homesteading can become a justification for certain claims of land, but obviously, there's going to need to be a system of parceling out the land before things start getting developed in this area, especially in order to achieve the kind of density that they're targeting. And I think that doing that on a virtual platform in almost, I guess it's like a, almost like a kind of game and having this online thing where people can go in and you can actually be doing design work and figuring out that parcelization and the street grid and where the infrastructure goes, doing that in a virtual way with many participants, I think that could be a really, a really interesting way to start to establish those kind of claims for when it then moves into the real world. Absolutely. And we're super excited about everything that you just mentioned. I do want to mention, though, that there's another part of the Liberland development that's part of the competition, and that's called Napredoc, which is Liberland's gateway for visitors arriving by boat in the region. And Napredoc is actually really small. It's only a five-hectare site. It's a former industrial site in Akatin, which is a free trade zone about 10 kilometers south of Liberland along the Danube River. This is where Liberland docks its boats, which I mentioned about both Bitcoin Freedom Boat, which is this time-sharing boat, and also in the future, their houseboats. And they move them from this location called the Winter Harbor into the Summer Harbor just because of the flooding. So they go back and forth between two harbors. The Summer Harbor is a little north of Liberland, but it's not part of the competition. So Napredoc is actually going to be developed very soon. And part of this competition, part of the prizes, is to get to negotiate a real contract to be able to design something for the next Floating Man Summer Festival next year in 2021. 
So there's a piece of this competition which is very real at this point in terms of construction coming up in the next year or two. The Napa Dock location is really interesting. As you go along down this whole stretch of the Danube, there's not a lot of development along it. Um, I think a lot of that is because of the flooding. But this little town of, of Apatine, this Napredak area, it's just this strip right along the river that's cleared now. I guess it was something industrial before. But it seems like kind of an ideal place to be locating some kind of a, a little harbor or port. And it's, it's close to Liberland. And then you have some connection to a road network. Just a little bit north of Liberland, there's a bridge that crosses over to Croatia, which could get you land access to Liberland eventually. Exactly. It seems like a really great site for them to have acquired this. And the fact that they were able to get it classified as a free trade zone really kind of puts a, the flag in the ground. Napredak is actually not a free trade zone, but Apatine, parts of Apatine are. But eventually, what they're hoping to do is not just develop it as a harbor, but they really want to build something substantial there eventually, like a hotel or kind of a convention center or something that, again, has some density and will bring a lot of people to the area. That's kind of a long-term plan. And people submitting to this competition will also have the opportunity to negotiate for that area for the future development, not just for this floating man festival. We've mentioned the, the flooding a couple of times now, and I think it's worth talking about what we mean <laughs> when we talk about this site flooding. Because as I understand it, it's not just a little bit of flooding. It's not like, you know, it's not like you get a little bit of flooding along the shoreline or something. It's, <laughs> I mean, as it is, I think about maybe a quarter or a third of the peninsula that is the Liberland land area is wetlands based on some maps that have been put out there. But from what I've been able to figure out from the topography and some information I found about some of the flooding in this area, it looks like probably about half of this peninsula floods when they get some really high flood levels, which has happened a couple times in the last 10 or 20 years. Am I right about that? A lot of this area land area actually floods, right? Yeah, it floods and it floods kind of seasonally. And that's why Liberland moves its boats back and forth to the summer and winter harbor. But also it's a seismic zone. So even very recently in March, there was a major seismic event close to Zagreb, which is not really that far in Croatia. And there was some major damage there. So there's considerations about seismic events too. I just wanted to mention though, kind of getting back to, I just want to give you a little bit of the nitty gritty of competition details. First of all, we're hoping to attract a global community of well-established architects and also emerging young talent, including students. The competition is an ideal opportunity for something like an architectural startup to establish their name in the global market. The jury is kind of high profile, and it includes the president of Liberland, of course, Vijit Lika, also Patrick Schumacher. So both of them, Vijit Lika and Patrick Schumacher, are lead strategists of the development of Liberland as Patrick has been involved in it since the very start. The other people are Vidran Mimika, who is actually the last director of Berlage Institute and the current director of a program at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Raya Ani, who's a fellow in the American Institute of Architects and the founder of Raw NYC. She is also the winner of the 2015 Liberland Design Competition. Bruno Jurisic, who's the founder of Atelier Bruno Jurisic, based in Croatia and also Hong Kong. Jillian Godsil, who's a 
blockchain expert and the founder of Block Leaders, but she's also a world diplomat of Liberland and editor-in-chief of Liberland Press. Vera Kukavana, who is a professional researcher, is a Hadid architect, but she's also the very first libertarian elected official in Russia. And she accomplished that at age 20, which is wonderful. She's also a current PhD candidate. We also have the philosopher Garrett Crossman, who's a transdisciplinary philosopher and also painter, artist. John Pitters, who is a founding partner of Architroge Design Studio and a current PhD candidate. And finally, the architect Shady Albert Michael, who founded S Plus Studio and is also an environmental consultant. So this is a wonderful panel and people that are entering the competition will have interaction with this panel, which is kind of a wonderful experience, especially for young students or startups. Yeah, that's great. Just to talk a little bit about the prizes. So as I mentioned, the first place winner, either the team or individual, because teams or individuals can submit to this competition, that team or individual that wins the first place prize is invited to negotiate a contract with Lieberlin to design the first phase of Doc, which is, as I mentioned, is a preparation for Floating Man Festival of 2021. And by the way, Floating Man is similar to Burning Man. And all the prize winners, I should say from among all the prize winners, one or more teams or individuals will be selected and invited to negotiate a contract with Liberland to further develop a portion of their competition entry towards a more fully realized proposal that can eventually be built. Separate from that, there are monetary prizes, and they are being given in merits, which are Liberland's cryptocurrency. However, they are not awarded in cash. They're awarded as a distribution towards Liberland citizenship, which costs 5,000 merits. So, for instance, the first prize winner receives 10,000 merits, which means that two team members can become citizens right away. And the prizes are 10,000, 9,000, 8,000, 5,000, and 4,000 for first, second, third, fourth, and fifth place. If you don't receive enough merits to become a citizen, you can also contribute work towards Liberland. So you can do something for Liberland to earn the merits, or you can contribute cash if you wish so that you can earn citizenship. So the competition launched on May 16th. And like I said, it's open to all architects, urbanists, interior designers, and also architecture and design students. And teams or individuals can enter, and the teams don't have to be comprised only of professionals or only of students. They can be comprised of both. And there's only one registration per team, so you don't pay the fee twice. The deadline for submittal is August 16th. That may be extended a little bit. I'm not sure yet. And then the actual design submission is October 16th. So that gives the teams plenty of time. And the winners are going to be announced in November of 2020. I do want to mention something really important in conjunction with a symposium that I'll be talking about in a second. We're offering a 30% discount for registration for both professionals and students from July 18th and the website to register is designliberland2020.splashthat.com. Thanks for spelling that all out. 
hopefully we have some people in the audience who <laughs> are qualified to put something together for this. And it'd be really interesting. I'm really interested to see what comes out of it. We mentioned earlier that you did do a design competition in 2015. Now that we've talked about kind of what the idea is behind this one, can you talk about what some of the results were and what some of the proposals were that came out of that 2015 design competition and maybe how some of those ideas could inform people's entries for 2020? Absolutely. So there was a wide gamut of entries, meaning people that had super practical solutions ranging all the way to super abstract solutions. And, you know, both ends of the spectrum were very wonderful. The thing that distinguishes this competition is we're really asking people to kind of pull down a little bit and alongside their super conceptual, wonderful designs to also really consider the reality that Land needs to be built and to come up with something, I wouldn't say practical, but more realistic in terms of something that can be developed into a real full-blown design proposal. I will say that the main difference between the 2015 and the 2020 competition, which will make it a little bit difficult to kind of look back at 2015 as a guideline, is that blockchain is kind of introduced as a concept generator and design driver. And that's the most pronounced difference between the two competitions. And the reason blockchain is being introduced is because Liberland is actually transitioning to blockchain governance. And they also want to offer many services on blockchain. And already they function purely on cryptocurrency. So they're very wedded to this idea of kind of a transparent distributed network available to everyone rather than sort of a president. And there will still be a president, there will still be a government, but it's going to be very minimal by comparison. So they're in the process of working that out right now. And I want to say that for myself, I kind of theorize blockchain as the eighth mass media after things like print, recording, cinema, radio, television, internet, and even mobile phones. Blockchain, together with artificial intelligence, will transform society very profoundly, just as profoundly as the internet did. This, this is not just my pure speculation. A lot of this is kind of in the air, quote unquote. And so what distinguishes blockchain from earlier mass media is that it is decentralized. It's a, it's a very different animal. Along with that, I just want to quote Melanie Swan, who's actually the founder of the Institute for Blockchain Studies. And she says something very interesting about blockchain, which hopefully will stimulate people's thinking about how design can flourish from the theories and ideas of blockchain. So her quote is, we should think about blockchain as another class of thing like the internet, a comprehensive information technology with tiered technical levels and multiple classes of applications for any form of asset registry, inventory, and exchange, including every area of finance, economics, and money, hard assets such as physical property, and intangible assets such as votes, ideas, reputation, intention, health data, information, etc. And to this laundry list, I wish to add architecture to the things that blockchain can contribute a great deal to. Yeah, it's interesting. We've um, we haven't really talked a lot about blockchain and Bitcoin and all that on our podcast. I guess you know previously we haven't really made that connection. Um, but it'll be really hold on. This is that this is a part of the podcast where I announce to everybody that Joe is a no coiner. 
<laughs> I have. I actually have written a song which, which is on Spotify called "Woulda Coulda Shoulda," <laughs> which was inspired, which was inspired by the fact that I was I started paying attention to Bitcoin back in like 2012 or something like that when it was like four dollars. Never bought any. So around the time it was hitting twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> I kind of had the inspiration for this song called "Woulda Coulda Shoulda." <laughs> It would be really interesting to see what comes out of this competition and to see how people incorporate that into their designs and use that as an inspiration for how they see this society being built. Yeah, I think that blockchain, right now, I think a lot of lay people think of blockchain as just cryptocurrency and, and that it's just this, to the extent they know anything about it, that it's just kind of this technology that enables these cryptocurrency transactions to take place. But as you said, it can really be much more than that. And you think about the way that now so many things that exist in the physical world have a presence on the internet, right? Businesses have websites and there is, is all kinds of like GIS data. We've been talking about all this um, information about Liberland, which I've been able to find all this information online about all these physical aspects of this place. And I think you're right. I think that blockchain is the next step for that where what blockchain really does is it takes that documentation and that assimilation of information, it takes it away from kind of centralized actors and it puts it into this this really public sphere of information where, for one thing, everybody can access it. For another thing, it can become permanent and it's also trustless. Like you don't have to trust. Right now, if you go on a website and pull up some information, you have to trust that the person putting that information on the website is saying what it is. But with blockchain, it can take that need for that third-party trust out of the equation. So when you start representing objects in the real world, including you know land parcels and architecture and developing smart contracts around those things, again, it takes that aspect of trust off the table where you can just trust the system and that you don't have to rely on trusting other humans who may have ulterior motives. Exactly. And I mean, the potential for blockchain is exponential once you consider things like Internet of Things or artificial intelligence or augmented reality. You know, you can develop apps on blockchain. There's so much potential for blockchain. And I am a staunch believer that it will transform the world, not in the too distant future. Initially through currencies, but later on through services offered through blockchain. Daniela, what is the format of the submission so we're asking for a digital format that, and it's specified on the website exactly the size of the posters. Um, you can submit either as PDF or JPEG, either horizontal or vertical, but it has to be very specific size. So you need to produce five of those posters. And then you also have the option of accompanying that with a video or a set of videos, although that will not replace the posters. You still have to submit the posters. And in addition to that, you have to submit a 500-word statement, which has to both appear on your posters and also um, be submitted separately as a Word file. The other thing that's very important is if so people are listening who are going to submit, remember not to put your name or the team name anywhere that's mentioned a hundred times on the website <laughs> uh, because we want to judge this anonymously and fairly. Yeah. And I think I've seen those instructions on kind of how to manage that on the uh, on that web page. Yeah. There are very specific instructions and in all kinds of communications to participants. Yeah. I'm just curious with the written statement, is there any restriction on going over 500 words? 
I'm thinking if it was Patrick Schumacher submitting something here, you'd be getting at least 5,000 words. <laughs> Although, no, I will tell you, he can be one of the most succinct, kind of bullet-pointed <laughs> thinker. It's really amazing what he can synthesize into like a single sentence. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we actually are asking people to keep to 500 words or under. So, Daniela, to build on all the great work you're doing with Liberland, you have a symposium coming up soon that's more generally focused on the concept of free private cities. We had Titus Gable on a few episodes back talking about this concept, but can you talk about the symposium and what's going to be discussed there? Absolutely. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you an introduction on the big ideas that are kind of driving this. And a big part of it is Liberland, because this symposium came out of the Liberland agenda. So the fluidity, mobility, and dynamism of 21st century network society is transforming the way that we build cities. The paradigm shift in architecture and urban design is marked by an intense focus on systems of communication, complexity, adaptation, correlation, co-evolution, legibility, responsiveness, order, and freedom. This shift towards evolutionary systems thinking takes into account the role of agents in social change insofar as innovation is driven by individual choices. Urban design innovation is accelerated by the convergence of natural and artificial life and intelligence. So things like artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, Internet of Things, robotics, all these things are kind of enhancing the architectural investigations going on right now. Also, the advancement of telecommunications and mass media, the exploration of real-time decision systems via big data and artificial intelligence the emergence of distributed computational intelligences such as blockchain, the movement towards knowledge-based economies anchored in research and development. So in this context, the world becomes a laboratory and entrepreneurship in an open market is the best avenue for creating wealth and improving the quality of life for the greatest number of people. The topics of Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium emerged from the agenda of Liberland initially, the agendas of the competition, I should say, the current competition. The design competition stems from the conviction that times of crisis can greatly accelerate the emergence of disruptive innovations and novel architectural agendas. So you mentioned Tika's Gable, and I'm not going to go into his theory in details, but his theory of pre free private cities is actually a radical disruptive innovation in cosmopolitan sociality. And Liberland is the first fully autonomous jurisdiction in the world was to bring it to its full fruition. So while the visions for Liberland and free private cities offer unprecedented opportunities for radical design innovation, most Western urban developments remain mired in a stranglehold of bureaucratic overregulation via stringent planning guidelines, futile zoning restrictions, outdated building codes, combined with the economic stagnation going on in parts of the Western world, resulting from state-manipulated markets, frankly, and Innovation in the built environment is actually evolving at a very slow pace, almost a snail's pace. 
in the built environment, not in the academic environment where there's a lot of sort of brain power and design innovation, but in the built environment, innovation is practically stagnant. So an overhaul of planning and zoning restrictions coupled with an unencumbered free market would accelerate innovation exponentially through the process of entrepreneurial, market-driven discovery and testing of novel design and development strategies. So from these initial premises from the broader scope of Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium, which aims to kickstart discursive debate on the transformation of architectural and urban design relative to society's progression towards civil and entrepreneurial freedom. The symposium will explore a wide gamut of theoretical and speculative trajectories about the design of future cities for a highly agile, technologically networked society of the 21st century. This is how the symposium is going to go. It's going to open with keynote speeches by Patrick Schumacher, Titus Gable, and Shege Bouchon, followed by two sessions that will each include short presentations and group debates. The symposium will end with a roundtable debate that will include all the speakers in both sessions, followed by Q&A. There will be a half-hour intermission with brief presentations on private cities around the world, and something we're super excited about, the inauguration of a new digital platform, parametricism.com, which is a collaboration between myself, or I should say Arc Agenda, and a gentleman named Lars Van Bijenen, who is in Amsterdam. So the first session of the symposium is called Freedom in Urban Design, and the participants are going to be Patrick Schumacher, Titus Gable, Shege Bouchan, Scott Bayer and Vera Kikanova, and discussions will focus on things like freedom, private cities, charter cities, market urbanism, liquid democracy, economics, markets, distributed intelligence, blockchain-powered governance and services, urban and architectural design for free private cities, and the migration of architecture to cyberspace, and more. And there's also some bleed-through between the first session topics in the second session topics. There's going to be a little crossover. The second session is called Cities and the Digital Transformation, and participants are Lev Manovich, Philippe Morel, Neil Leach, Sanford Quinter, and discussion will focus on big data, cultural analytics, planetary scale computation, complex epigenetic systems, soft systems, artificial life and intelligence, biology as information theory, virtual reality, augmented reality, Internet of Things, blockchain, robotics, and more. So the symposium was co-curated by myself in collaboration with Bruno Jurisic. And actually, he and I are planning a year-long sort of series of online symposiums in the coming year. And the way to register for this free symposium is to go to freeprivatecitiesarchitecture.splashthat.com. The symposium is on July 18th, 2020, starting at 1300 GMT, which is 8 a.m. here in Chicago. Okay, yeah, and we'll, we'll put links to that on our show notes page for this at anarchitecturepodcast slash 31. Yeah, this is a great event, and I think that a lot of people in our audience, if you like the kind of stuff we talk about in our podcast, even if you're not in the world of architecture or involved with the development of the built environment, 
this goes way beyond architecture and development with all these topics that you're working into it. I think a lot of people in our audience would really enjoy this and, and get a lot out of it. Yeah, we're really excited to be able to have this forum where we can discuss the bigger issues that emerge out of the Libra Land Design Competition because that competition brings up so many issues about just the general approach we're taking to the development of cities and architecture, but also like what's happening in the background with technology and how those technologies are driving the design field also. Well, let's, I promised at the beginning that we were going to say a little bit more about ARC Agenda. So let me back you up a bit here. And can you talk a little bit, just a little more detail about ARC Agenda, how you got started, and what other kind of projects you're undertaking, and really what the mission of it is? Of course. So as I mentioned, ARC Agenda started in 2015. And initially, I established it specifically to be able to qualify to become an affiliate program partner of the Chicago Architecture Biennial, which at the time was taking place for the first time ever. And what I wanted to do was to sponsor and host this and curate this event that ended up being called Arch Agenda Debates. And there were five wonderful speakers that I can talk a little bit about. And that was the way that Arc Agenda was established. But the mission has grown since. And as I kind of outlined early on in the program, the mission is kind of multifaceted at this point. And it is a research-based design lab as well as sort of a venue for hosting various events and publishing. So just to give you a little background on architecture debates. So the debate provocation was based on what the biennial curators were asking, which is what is the state of the art of architecture? So the architecture debates aimed to spark lively and candid debate about the direction contemporary architecture should take. What should be the agenda for the 21st century architecture? Should there be an agenda? And with that, I'm going to quote Patrick again, who said, is there such a debate? Before such a debate, we need to answer fundamental questions concerning our discursive culture. Should we, as participants and protagonists of architecture, commit or submit ourselves to a collective debate arguing about the broad direction in which architecture should progress? The debate agenda was basically, we had five guests, Patrick Schumacher, Peter Eisenman, Jeffrey Kipnis, Rainier de Graff, and Theodore Spiropoulos. All of them celebrated architectural thought leaders, and they presented 20-minute um, position provocations or manifestos that elaborated their respective conviction on the debate provocation keeping the historical focus somewhat narrowly on developments of the past two decades and reflecting or projecting on the problematics and values that drive design innovation today and in the next two decades. The speakers debated, treaded on each other's territories and challenged each other's assumptions. It was really quite a lively debate and you can see all those videos on my website, arcagenda.com. I did go through and watch those videos. And for those in our audience who aren't that involved in the world of architecture, these are some heavy hitters that you had up on stage. 
and of course the Chicago Biennial is a big stage to have them on. This was a really, I think, important event. And it was interesting. I mean, it's Patrick got up there first. And of course, he's arguing, which we talked about with him when we had him on, on our podcast, that he sees parametricism as not the only way forward, but I think the best way forward for the profession. He sees this as kind of the best practice. I think some people hear him talk about it that way. And maybe they think that he's saying like, we all just have to do this and you have to stop doing whatever else you're doing. But I don't really, I think what he's really saying is that he's looking around at some of the work that's been done in the past 20 years and some of the, especially some of the premier architecture firms out there and some of the premier projects. And he's seeing a lot of the influence of the kind of ideas that inform parametricism. And I think he's trying to say, hey, everybody, you know, we're, we're all kind of in this boat already. Let's all just start rowing in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. Then, course, I just you... want to say there's a gross misunderstanding, I think, especially among architects, that Patrick is like trying to take over the design world with parametricism. <laughs> but in fact, even though he coined the word, he did not invent the style. He's not claiming to have invented the style. And I mean, I must say a word about that. I want to talk about the milieu in which I was educated in the 90s, which was coinciding with early experiments that were predecessors of parametricism. So at the time, we were calling it folding, which was a term that Greg Lynn came up with. So at the time that I was in architecture school, which was at the University of Illinois in Chicago, Peter Eisenman was the honorary chair of my architecture program. And a very young Greg Lynn and Doug Garofalo were teaching some of their very first classes in the graduate program. And our frequenting critics included people like Jeff Kipnis, Sanford Quinter, Ben Nicholson, Mark Wigley. Again, really huge voices these days. But at the time, what was happening is everybody was reading Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. And there was this kind of pronounced air of excitement about something new that's emerging. And of course, was happening simultaneous to some computer software kind of becoming available animation software, which really transformed what somebody like Peter Eisenman was doing through Greg Lynn, who was practicing in his office. So a lot of innovation was happening in that office through Greg Lynn. But I didn't hear about parametricism until 2009 when I attended Patrick Schumacher's lecture at the Los Angeles conference called Intensive Fields which was really very soon after he coined the word parametricism. And that talk really reinforced the trajectory of experiments that were prevalent in my architecture school 10 years before. And it made sense of a whole generation of research and development going on since the 90s. I'm just pointing that out because basically the tome that Patrick wrote, The Autopoiesis of Architecture, his two-volume magnum opus, is mostly focused on the history, the theory, the development of architecture leading up to parametricism. And parametricism is sort of the last chapter. But that theory is so involved that I think every architect owes it to themselves to read it because it involves everything that everybody has been involved in certainly over the last 20 or 30 years, but going all the way back to the Renaissance, that's how far he goes back. So I didn't actually meet Patrick until 2014, initially digitally, when he told me about the launch of a new PhD program, which I ended up applying to at the European Graduate School in Switzerland. And I was already 
very much into parametricism as kind of a big picture style that actually is identifiable going all the way back to the 90s and something that I definitely participated in in some way or another for my entire career. So even though I found out the word very late in the game, I'm totally on that page. I totally understand what he's saying by us as a profession kind of getting our act together and starting to move in a progressive direction. There's always, I guess, in any field, especially any creative field, there's always going to be a tension between what in those debates, I think Jeffrey Kipnis called this Cambrian explosion of ideas that happened, I guess, at the end of modernism in the world of architecture where, and Patrick has talked about this as well, where you had postmodernism, deconstructivism, and you had a lot of different experiments starting to happen when people realized that they didn't have to bind themselves to the kind of hard rationality that characterized a lot of modernist architecture. But of course, at some point, those experiments need to start to congeal into something that's, to use a Patrick word, that's legible, <laughs> and that's meaningful, and that is responsive to what's happening around them, both socially and physically and, and aesthetically. And, and I think that's what Patrick really sees as the strength of parametricism, is it's not just about creating these, these interesting curvatures and, and interesting shapes and forms. The way that, that I understand that Zaha Hadid, at least, that their firm develops these designs is that they're really looking at inputs. They're taking inputs from the environment and from the types of social interactions that the program is suggesting, and they're simulating them. They're doing all kinds of ways of kind of teasing out some kind of design information from what they see as inputs from the environment and the program for each project. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at parametricism very recently, because there are some exciting current developments in parametricism, we're kind of a long way from where we were 20 years ago when we were talking about folding and the technology was so basic by comparison to what we have right now. Let me backtrack for a little bit. So Patrick's theories of architecture, the way he elaborated them in this two-volume set, Auto Places of Architecture, actually anchor architecture in Nicholas Luhmann's systems theory of society. He views architecture as spatial communication. And to Nicholas Luhmann's function systems, which are things like politics, economy, science, art, law, etc., Patrick adds architecture. He's basically continuing Luhmann's systems theory with architecture. And he theorizes parametricism in the context of the evolution of epochal and traditional styles. That's kind of another thing to understand about parametricism, starting all the way back in the Renaissance. And he theorizes parametricism as the 21st century epochal style after modernism, with styles like postmodernism and deconstructivism as transitional styles that were part of a sort of brainstorming leading to parametricism. So he very much believes in this staged development of architecture and sort of us advancing through stages and at each stage kind of a new style emerges, but always, always in conjunction with sort of societal systems and what's happening in society. So it's never just an exercise in pure formalism, which is more of what you can say about somebody like Peter Eisenman and even Jeff Kipnis. They are sort of like the formalist end of parametricism. Patrick is super interested in social systems. 
And what's happening right now in parametricism is we have sort of the emergence over the last 10 years, actually not very recent, but becoming more and more sort of complex is tectonism and tectonic articulation. So what Patrick says about tectonism is that it's a subsidiary style of parametricism and the subsidiary styles of parametricism that he identifies include foldism, which was very early on, blobism. I mean, these, these titles are a little funny too, but they're exactly what was happening in design studios. Blobism, everybody was looking at blobs. Then everybody was into swarm and he calls that swarmism culminating in this current trend of tectonism. So the point is that parametricism is evolving. It's not like the stationary style that was defined and now everybody has to follow the trend. Quite to the contrary, everybody is involved in sort of the push to developing the style. And it's so multifaceted and it's evolving into so many directions that there's room for almost every practice out there that is interested in sort of innovation. So he makes an analogy to modernism subsidiary styles that emerged during the evolution of the 60s, things like brutalism, for instance, that was just a subsidiary style of modernism. It didn't overhaul modernism. It was just a part of it. The other sort of project going on in parametricism on Patrick's end, and also I'm, I'm very interested in this, is something that he calls the semiological projects. There are many references in the books to architectural semiology and specifically to parametric semiology. So Patrick divides architecture tasks into two categories, organization and articulation. And then he further distinguishes articulation into phenomenological articulation and semiological articulation. And the most advanced research currently taking place in this domain is agent-based parametric semiology, which you also kind of touched on, which is conducted by Patrick's PhD group in Vienna. So I'm not part of that group, but it's definitely a subject that I'm researching. The last thing I want to touch on is this idea of architecture migrating to cyberspace, uh, especially in this post-COVID climate. What Patrick sees happening now in the near future is that parametricism will migrate to cyberspace. And this is actually a direct quote for him. So he says, what I believe for us as architects invested in high-density urbanization, in intensified interaction processes, in mixed urban development, etc., that talent in terms of the new complexity and dynamism, parametricism, all this will shift out of the real built environment and to the creation of cyberspace. And the project that I mentioned, the Lieberland virtual market kind of came along almost exactly at the time when I heard him say this in a lecture, in an online lecture. And since I was able to kind of activate the team for that and, you know, invite kind of reconnect Lieberland with Zaha Hadid for this particular project. And so we're kind of excited about this prospect because even if we moved back to full-blown interaction, physical interaction in cities in the next year, let's say, I don't think this period will be forgotten. I think what's going to happen is we're going to know now that we can integrate almost every process in our work life into cyberspace. Yeah, it's fascinating too with that whole virtual architecture project, because 
in addition to being able to develop things and see them in you know much faster than real time, you can also have different versions of developments, you know, and, and then compare and contrast between different paths that that design might take. You could have a sort of version A, version B of Liberland and have people discussing between those two, you know, which ones they prefer and, and you know, probably have a bit of cross-pollination between them. And that's pretty much unlimited. Yeah, absolutely. And we're hoping that this will be also a, a type of gaming environment. So there, there's prototypes for this. Like there's something called Decentraland, which is a blockchain-powered platform where you can buy virtual land. It's not very sophisticated in terms of building things on it and designing for it. That's not the kind of platform that we're hoping for, but we want an element of that, of the interactive element. Mm. So we want people to create avatars and go into the virtual land and be able to kind of peruse it. What we hope to do is to also build communities in virtual Liberland, you know, where people can kind of test out what it's like to live next to this neighbor and how can you deal with this business, you know? So we want to create a community beyond just kind of a professional platform for developers and architects. We actually want this to also be fun, but this is in the process of development. So there's nothing exact that I can say at this point about exactly how it's going to manifest itself, but we're very excited about it. My kids are, are obsessed with Minecraft and their whole generation is. And it's really interesting because as platforms like these come online, you know, you have this whole generation of kids that has grown up building these virtual worlds and existing in them. And it's amazing the stuff that they come up with, you know, and, and the sort of wild creativity that they put into it. There's also there's a platform called Liberty Minecraft, which is a Minecraft server, which is hosted by a libertarian guy who does kind of set up these sort of experiments. And he has some, some sort of rules in place in that world where there's certain zoning. He allows currencies to sort of develop and, and you can buy and sell things in there. I think diamonds tend to be the main currency. But yeah, it, it's really interesting because I think as these sort of platforms come online, there's going to be a whole slew of kids who are coming up with just an innate understanding of how these sort of worlds work, these virtual worlds. Absolutely. And, you know, we're kind of banking on that. But also <laughs> there are some incredible engines right now that render in real time, like Epic's Unreal Engine is an example. And their latest release five is absolutely stunning. We're hoping to build a real time rendering engine that makes things look much more realistic than these gaming platforms, because we really mm. want architects to be able to represent their designs as fully as possible in virtual reality. We don't want these to be sort of toys. We want them to be fully developed architectural proposals. So yeah. um, that's another way that we're kind of distinct from typical gaming platforms. Well, Daniela, this has all been great. We've covered a lot of ground here. Just to wrap up, can you talk about any other... You've already talked about a lot of stuff that Archagenda is doing, but any other plans for the future here that you want to mention? Yes, absolutely. So we're looking forward to Dutch Design Week, myself in conjunction with Patrick and Lars and Parametricism.com. And we're going to host a symposium at that event, which is going to be in October. And probably we're going to have other activities in conjunction with that, at least publication on a daily basis during that event. And that's a very large, um, it's like the second largest design expo in Europe. It attracts about 350,000 people when it's on the ground. But now that it's going to be virtual this year, we think it's going to be quite well trafficked. 
So that's something coming up in October. Also, I'm definitely planning to host at least one, if not more, events during the Chicago Architecture Biennial in October of 2021, or I should say it begins in October 2021, sort of the next round of the ARC Agenda debates. But the biennial focus has not yet been published, so I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to position that debate. And then separate from that, Bruno Jurisic and I, who are the co-curators of Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium, are planning a year-long series of virtual symposiums. And the next one, we're hoping, will be staged through some partners in China. So we're really excited about that. But again, we don't have anything in place for it. We're not going to start working on it until after the symposium. But the culmination of this year-long set of events in addition to the videos that are produced by it, will be a, some sort of publication, like either a, a single volume or multiple volumes, depending on what we accumulate in terms of knowledge from these symposiums. So that's what's on the table currently. Great. Well, just to wrap up here, if people want to find more about you and your work, what's the best place for them to go? Well, of course, you can friend me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. But my website is arcagenda.com. And then if you just Google Liberland Design Competition, you'll come up with both the competition from 2015 and 2020. And also the Free Private Cities Architecture Symposium website, which I mentioned earlier. But the best place to go is arcagenda.com. And also, if anybody is interested in finding out more about the competition or they're kind of hedging about whether they want to register, they can always email me directly at daniella at arcagenda.com. I welcome communication. And of course, we'll link to all of that on our show notes page as well, which will be anarchitecturepodcast.com slash 31. Well, thanks so much, Daniela, for taking the time with us today and going through all of this. I'm glad we got to touch on all of these different topics and all of the different events that you're involved in. I think there's a lot of things here for our audience to get excited about, whether or not they're involved in, in architecture in the built environment. I think a lot of people are interested in the idea of free private cities, of Liberland as kind of a case study for that. And so I think that as these things start to be better developed, I think that's something that people in the libertarian world are going to be hearing a lot more about. I certainly hope so. And thank you so much for giving me a platform to talk about all this stuff. This is really exciting. And I think your podcast is unique right now in the field. There isn't a better avenue for libertarian architects and people who believe in startup societies and startup cities and free private cities. I think this is a really great initiative that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela. Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. By the way, I love your guys' podcast. I haven't <laughs> heard it in a long time. Have you guys just eased? <laughs> we, we don't put out episodes very often, so <laughs> you're probably not that far behind. <laughs> <laughs>
Shoot him.